Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of the Dear Dyslexic podcast series, episode 48, where we're talking about disability and advocacy. This podcast is a recording from our 2021 inaugural conference, Surviving and Thriving in a Non-Dyslexic World. I was lucky enough to host a roundtable conversation with Dan Graham, Theatre Director and Disability Advocate. Dan has a particular interest in accessing support for neurodiverse performing artists. His directing and advocacy work has seen him travel all over Australia and the world in his quest to research and explore access and inclusion. Our other roundtable guest was Sally Close. Sally left her corporate career armed with 20 plus years leadership experience to apply her business improvement processes to her own consultancy company. Her work helps clients with organisational development and cultural change. Sally is a parent of a dyslexic child and has a deep understanding of the challenges and benefits learning differences can create in the workplace. I hope you enjoy this roundtable conversation as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Welcome, Dan and Sally, to our roundtable conversation. Thank you, Shay. Thanks, Shay. Dan, can you give us a little bit of an intro? I mean, people have seen the conference booklet, but it'd be great if you could just talk to us a little bit about um, who you are and where you work and what you do. Yep, certainly. First of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for this opportunity because it's very important, as we've discussed for the last couple of weeks. Um, as uh, Shay said, my name is Dan Graham. I'm on Gallagher Country here in Sydney, um, New South Wales. I'm actually a professional theatre director and a disability advocate with a particular focus on uh, in arts and disability and in op of that, in particular, um, I've got a particular interest and work that I do in terms of access for uh, artists who identify as being neurodiversity, dyslexia, in the performing arts. And so obviously it's personal, but it's become more than personal because that work has taken me both nationally and internationally in the last few years. So that's me. Thanks, Dan and Sally. Are you both matching today? You didn't tell me you'd be no. wearing, wearing orange. I feel a bit out of it now and I should have uh, changed outfits. <laughs> Sally, welcome today. And can you just introduce yourself as well? Hi, Shay. Thanks. Thanks for having me on board. Sally Close. Um, I am an organisational improvement uh, consultant and that actually entails a lot of work with companies that are investing in their people to um, deliver growth and business improvement and of course uh, doing that work a big part of it is the fundamental learning of of how actually how people transition through change um, and that's where my speciality is in um, learning to learn and learning differences and i have the um real pleasure of being able to introduce to workplaces diversity of thought and understanding um, neurodivergence and of course including it in that is um, dyslexia and uh, dyslexia is very close to my heart because my son will has dyslexia um, and uh, very very likely that I do too but I am undiagnosed uh, and we do have a family history of um, learning differences learning difficulties and disabilities in general actually um, so I've grown up in an environment where we're very um, aware of um, disability uh, impacts in a workplace setting and even in a social context. It's such an important topic that we're getting to discuss today. Um, and we've heard a bit already through Judith's presentation, some of the difficulties uh, that those with dyslexia uh, can have in the workplace. And you've already, both of you have used some different labels, which hopefully we get time to talk about. 
But Dan, from your experience throughout your career, what are some of the key challenges that you've um, come across because of your dyslexia? I think it's very interesting that you bring this up, Shay, in regards to what we were saying before, in terms of it all starts from the universities or educational uh, background. I am, I don't mind outing myself, I'm a 42-year-old uh, man. So I only say that in the sense that I'm of the generation and I'm sure a lot of people who are watching us will relate to this and hopefully not so much now. But I was identified as being stupid, you know, and I was often during my schooling, I was making joke, except for my last two years of schooling, where I actually, shock of all shocks, ended up going to an arts high school, which obviously fostered where I'm going, where I am now. Um, that my educational was, when I say non-existent, that's not true because ironically I was brought up by my mother who was who, an assistant principal who literally from a, obviously could see at an early age that I had difference, let's just say. And as a result, we always make a joke at, back to being 42 that my mum was the kind of mother who literally sent letters to like dyslexia associations in New York, London, Israel, when I was only very, very young, you know, to et cetera. So basically pre-internet, so when you can get an email straight away, mm -hmm. a big package would come along with what the latest studies were saying, et cetera, like, et cetera. And so I, I'm very beyond grateful for that because I know a lot of people with dyslexia and neurodiversity don't have that support. But as I said, in terms of my schooling and education, it was a very, at times, and I, not trying to be poor me here when I say this, but a very traumatic experience. Um, not just obviously the obvious, inverted commas, teasing from students. I often was bullied um, by many of my teachers, you know, looking back at it. And obviously when you're a kid, you're not in a position of power or whatever you want to call it. And I think it's very interesting that in terms of my interest, in terms of this particular space. It has only been the last couple of years that, yes, I've always acknowledged my neurodiversity and dyslexia, but it's only recently, basically, I've seen how it relates to the particular area of work that I'm in, that being a performing arts in Australia. And that has included, as I was just saying before, um, I was awarded a Create New South Wales Fellowship um, in 2019, which took me over to UK to meet with the access departments in the UK, to meet with them, um, to discuss the work they're doing with, and this is a dreadful concept to say, and I'm not saying that people who aren't professional can't be in the performing arts, I'm not saying it at all, but it was particularly focused for professional art with neurodiversity and dyslexia, because yes, we have access departments here in Australia, uh, when I say that, it's actually two main venues, one being the Sydney Opera House and one being the Victorian Arts Centre, um, both where I actually have contacts at. But literally, we're still at a stage in Australia that basically it's very hard to try to bring up this conversation in terms of access, in terms of for the artists as such. And that has actually been obviously my main area of study, along with, which I will say here, being a co-chair of an artist with a disability committee for the MEAA, which is Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, which is again enforced what we're trying to say here. And I think it's just very interesting that basically, yes, and we were just saying this before we went online, that at this time, 
diversity is being talked about in all its forms. And I wouldn't say there's one that's more important than the other, but at the same time, I think we may be in, on, all in agreement here that neurodiversity, dyslexia or disability in general is sadly behind an eight ball, <laughs> if I can say. And I think it's interesting that unfortunately, especially something which we will discuss later on, that inverted commas, when I don't look disabled, uh, people don't know necessarily or want to put myself in a box of, as I was just saying, either it's been disabled Dan or not disabled at all. And yeah, so, yeah. So for you, access to support and that understanding of our difficulties or differences has been a key challenge for you it progressing has. through your education and the workplace. It has, but it's been given, basically, I think it's a dreadful statement of make lemons into lemonade in a sense that basically, you know, like, because I have had, and what got my whole interest in the performing arts and neurodiversity and dyslexia was, and I'm not going to say who, but someone um, well-known in performing arts was discussing about, you know, how important it was to represent all forms of diversity. And um, disability was not mentioned in that conversation at all. And maybe it was a push in the back I needed, emotional push, you know, that I basically, I won't say confronted because that sounds a bit confrontational, but I basically brought up Hubbard in terms of disability. And I, that's basically, and that was about three years ago. And ironically, I will say this now, and we're talking about performing arts, obviously, on a weekly basis, I have people contacting me and I always make a comment, sometimes they are well known. And when I say well known, even the public would know who they are. And again, I'm not going to disclose names. You know, have said to me, if they disclose they have their neurodiversity and dyslexia, because that's obviously my main knowledge, you know, you know, and interest as well, you know, they are terrified they won't get work or they will lose work, which I think is a scary and terrifying statement. And I know, yeah. And it's really not an uncommon experience for people to be fearful of uh, losing their job if they disclose that they're dyslexic and something that I'll talk about uh, later in uh, one of my presentations. But do you think, um, Sally, the labels, I mean, we're talking about some of the challenges and we could talk about some of the challenges you've seen um, from your working career, but Dan's mentioned a lot of different labels. Um, what's your perspective on the use of those labels within the workplace and how we're trying to support uh, people that are neurodiverse or have dyslexia? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great lead-in, um, Shay and and Dan, what you're what you're sharing there, because in a workplace setting, obviously dyslexia does fall under the um, 1992 Disability Discrimination Act. However, that's not widely understood. Um, and even within the HR profession, which I'm part of, um, people don't really understand what dyslexia is to then identify and make the link that it is actually a disability and therefore falls, falls under the act and it's a, you know, it's a protection um, for employees to have particular rights. Um, when it comes to advocacy on a personal front, I don't you know, necessarily walk into workplaces or talk to clients about um, you know, the carrot and the stick and sort of saying, well, you must do this because it is actually, um, you, you know, you might be considered being discriminative. So I think that's the challenge, Shay, is that the language is 
that we need to have an understanding and awareness of that dyslexia is a disability and then therefore you know employees do have the rights but at the same time when you're advocating and wanting to embrace understanding dyslexia it's really to do with um, the learning differences and that's why I use that language because the environment can actually be changed to enable uh, anyone with dyslexia to be able to thrive in any workplace setting as long as the support and the resources are available and a lot of the time it's the support more than it is the resources um, so it's the time and workplace adjustments and the having people that are available to have support and conversations with as Jennifer was saying uh, in university she said it's important to have the technology and the systems um, and the policies in place for universities to help students thrive but what really um, is critical is that they have a coach or or someone to be able to lean on for support as to how they can actually put those resources into play it's um interesting and we've got a lot of people that have dyslexia that have joined us today or have a learning disability so if you've had any questions around this conversation or you've got any comments please um, add them to the chat box because you know the labeling is is really important I feel when we're put in under the umbrella of neurodiversity I feel it dilutes some of the challenges and some of the strengths that we have as um, individuals or individuals with dyslexia and I wonder what you think about that Dan around the different labels that are used um, for us as people with dyslexia. Exactly. I think it's very interesting as I said it's only been reasonably recently I have come across as the last couple of years in terms of neurodiversity because again I say from a generation that I am of basically I, I was of a generation of dare I say uh, learning disabled and for such a long time that's how I used to identify myself unfortunately and again I'm not trying to put people in their little boxes because if anyone <laughs> lets my desire or wish or what I plan to wish to do but that obviously equated as must be you know I must be intellectually have an intellectual disability and there are some people I'm sure who would be identified on a neurodiverse dyslexic spectrum who may but obviously as we know that is not the case not I don't want to say normally I can't believe it normally you know shoot me hit on the hand you know <laughs> you know but you know I think it's very interesting that in, when we look at in terms of in terms of labels like how do we get to pass like the whole idea of what what is seen is not like I always make a comment even in my own access work you know you have two people with very similar issues to me you're going to have two different people it's not just one person you know one cookie cutter image you know there you go let's move along you know and I think that is something that some a lot of people do overlap or don't even think about in a sense it, it's not just one thing like as I said like I always make the funny tell the funny story I went to a place and some people may have heard of it who are watching today uh, in year four as I said a million years ago went to a place called a Macquarie education Macquarie University special educational center and that was four days a week which was actually specifically for kids you know with now we know it's neurodiversity dyslexia and the main goal of them was to get their students in the one year that they were part of a course because it was actually the four days of schooling another day I went to inverted commas um 
um, mainstream schooling, if that makes sense, you know, and the main goal of them was to actually get us to read. At the end of the, that year, there was actually a performance of the Gingerbread Man and get over it, Dan, get over it. That's all I can say. But anyway, I was so, I know, I still feel bitter. What can I say? You know, exactly. And I wasn't cast as a Gingerbread Man, but I was cast as a narrator because I turned out to be the best reader, you know. So I think it's very funny that the career path that I've chosen, e.g., obviously involves a lot of reading, but it's actually something yeah. that I'm actually good at. But, and that's another thing, not all dyslexia means, I'm not, I'm telling things people already know here, but it's not necessarily reading back to front. It's not this, it's so many different things. And as I said to you guys before, I very rarely, and when I, I don't want to say it's a choice, but it's just what I, what I work with, in rehearsals, I very rarely take, and I'm actually currently actually in rehearsal on a show that I'm directing for a university in Perth. And ironically, during lockdown, that's been been done online, which is a rather interesting method, but it's a great experience, etc., etc. But in terms of that, I very rarely take um, um, notes at all. But I try to explain to people, and this is luckily the people who work with me, and I just say something in a second, understand by me not taking notes. Number one, that doesn't mean I'm paying attention, or that I'm actually taking note, note, mental notes, <laughs> if that makes sense. There may be written notes in my mind. And I always make the joke that when I did a production of a crucible a couple of years ago, um, one of my actors was concerned that I wasn't taking notes, and he said to me, and it was a, as I said, a crucible. And he was playing a young lawyer in a play. And he said, I need someone to base my character on. Can you heal me, Dad? And I said, okay, I want you to go home and just Google the name Boy Cohen. Most, if people aren't doing in theatre, they won't see Lion in this. But they, he came back the next day and he said, you know that Boy Cohen, Dad? And I said, yes. Did you know he was actually a young lawyer that was part of a McCarthy trials, which was the basis of a crucible? Yes, that's why I gave you that note. So <laughs> I think it's often, and this is something that I have been told that I do not just think beyond of square, but I can link things that may be, again, normal, you know, a person without dyslexia or neurodiversity would actually be able to interpret. So yeah. I think if we can try to find that, basically there are different, I hate using the term because I sound like, have one of the people that I've been taught about education and stuff, but the different pathways that people can go to, like I can give you exactly the same um, product, so to speak. Like uh, we can talk about it in a second. Like I am currently, and obviously it was stopped because of lockdown, but I'm ironically working on a project with Bill Shakespeare, which people may have heard of, which is a um, major or uh, professional, um, um, professional Shakespearean theatre company in Australia on a particular action, which we hope to have as a production. We did have a first development, as I said, literally just before COVID, and that is specifically on neurodiversity and dyslexia and Shakespeare, how I interpret, and it's quite easy to find, a number of characters in Shakespeare I mm -hmm. see having a neurodiversity, at the same time seeing that basically how them as an organisation, and as a wider term, how the performing arts in Australia can support the artists who are neurodiverse. I might be rambling on here, but I keep saying to Bill and any and all theatre companies specifically because that's my area. It's not just me. And even with we did a study 
or asked a survey to be conducted before the first development. And we had between 50 and 60 people responded in one week. So who identified as being dyslectic neurodiversity. And so I'm not the only unicorn, as I always say. So yeah. No, <laughs> no well, we're everywhere uh, in the workplace. Doesn't matter um, in what field it is. Uh, those with dyslexia uh, across all industries. And um, you raise good points around we need to be thinking that we're everywhere and that you're not just we're not just the unicorn <laughs> and we're not special in that sense exactly but sally um progressing on from what dan's just been talking about how do you think that workplaces could be advocating more strongly for supporting uh people with dyslexia and more broadly those with diversity um in the workplace you know, I think exactly to what um, Dan was sharing about his his own lived experience. That's and the fact that there are many others. Um, yep, definitely not there a unicorn there, Dan. <laughs> um, special person, I know, but not but not a unicorn <laughs> in that regard. Um, that workplaces need to understand the continuum and really look to understanding their employees. And if you really want to have a workplace that's going to thrive. Uh, even if it, it's, it's not just for neurodivergence, this is for all employees. If you're looking to have a workplace that's going to thrive, you really need to understand um, what people's thinking preferences are, what their workplace preferences are, what their learning differences are. If you want to help people transition through change, um, fundamental to that is, as I said earlier, um, how you actually learn because adapting to change is a learning experience in itself um, and how we manage our emotions so uh, one of the, the core activities that I do with workplaces is actually bringing teams together and having conversations about learning to learn and um, what are we actually already doing in our workplace where we're making accommodations or adjustments for different people and really having a think about is all our communication and the way that we learn, is it all written? Is it all in a certain format that is only going to suit certain thinking preferences, certain um, learning uh, capabilities you know should we be introducing um, video-based learning that's a, that's obviously a, a a one that is critical at the moment is a lot of um, micro learning in short two-minute videos and also having a series of learning that is live and interactive via zoom um, and there's been a real move with that Shay with um, what's happened in workplaces because the COVID experience is actually caught our workplaces to actually go, oh, how do we work remotely? How do we work flexible? Um, how do we engage and, and use Zoom? So there's been this whole momentum, which is then transferable to how do we all learn differently and how do we cope with change? Um, so some of the resources is really making sure that from the beginning, when you actually interview um, and include people into your workplace, that your interview questions include questions around um, Give me an example of the last um, learning experience, uh, learning event that you had, and um, what did you do? What were your challenges? And that can sort of uncover um, how people like to learn, and, and to from the get go, we're learning about how people um, are going to interact and be innovative in a workplace. Um, and then the induction process for that to have um, a coach or a sponsor, um, so that the person actually has a learning and development plan 
that has access and inclusion, diversity inclusion built into it. Um, so these aren't special programs for you know unicorns. This is this is for everyone, and that everyone will benefit from it. That's I, I guess the way I present it to workplaces, um, and you know it is very much if was listening to Jennifer earlier with her presentation around universities um, and their best practices to advocate for um, neurodiversity within, um, in, in the, within the educational setting, that's what workplaces can look to as well, those benchmarks. The challenge is, is that the education setting is still trying to set the benchmark and be as good as they can be. They're not there yet either. Um, and I think that's a really interesting lens that you put on because I think we go into the workplace, we don't think of it often as a learning environment. We're thinking of it, you've come in with the skill set that you're employed to do and you're there to do a job. And so um, I feel in organisations I've worked in that professional development and that plan is kind of put to the side, you do it once a year, it's a ticker box exercise and then it goes in the drawer. And you know, you might go to one conference and that's your PD for the year. So I think reframing it and then including um, those criteria around what um, assistance you might need and how do you learn, I think really can support and embed um, those changes in the workplace and make them day-to-day -day activities rather than putting them in the drawer and you look at them once a year. Um, and I think it's really important that we start reframing how we go into the workplace rather than just it being, I'm going to do my job and that's what I'm paid to do. I think, you know, it starts from the top, that um, cultural change around how we encourage and support our staff across the board and not just the unicorns. I love that concept. I think I will talk about unicorns for the rest of the day now. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because we've got some comments coming through around labelling and how difficult it is and also just the initial recruitment phase for people when there's initial online assessing, how that can um, automatically uh, block people with yeah. dyslexia and other learning disabilities or differences from getting in. I know just having to do selection criteria can take such a long time um, to do before and then doing a CV even to apply for a job. Um, so thank you for some of those comments that are coming through and at the end we'll probably have a little bit of time if people want to ask some direct questions. But I think how do we, um, Dan, how did you start to become an advocate? Because I know that's not what I ever set out to do in my no, life. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and it, just, exactly. it, it happened. So how has it been that um, you've ended up advocating for people with disabilities uh, in the arts and more broadly in the workplace? I think it's back to exactly what you said because it's so funny. I was talking to someone, I was very fortunate, and this did start my journey in terms of um, advocacy. I was selected a couple of years ago to be part of the Future Leaders Program, which was run the Council for All the Arts ones. And ironically, it was actually a friend of mine who's known me for a number of years who she suggested I put my hand up because, did I say, when you only know something, you do what you do if that makes sense. So I was like, well, I'm not a leader, you know, I'm just doing what I'm doing. But it became very evident by doing that program and I'm still heavily involved. Like they have alum committee in a new group every six months, um, you know, working out what should be done for the next six months. And I'm on their current committee on that. So obviously, but as part of that, obviously I am promoting, let's just say, the area in terms of, in terms of accessibility for all disabilities 
in terms of that, not obviously just neurodiversity and dyslexia. But in terms of that, it was very interesting. I think it's something that especially, and this is not unique to the performing arts, but uh, and something we have discussed that obviously, and maybe it's not just because of um, lockdown, but the issue of diversity, as it should be, has been brought up, um, be it Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, etc., all very important uh, things that need to be addressed and long overdue need to be discussed. But it's very interesting that I find, and this is not just my personal view, and this is other people who contact me, you know, who literally are concerned that disability is often being overlooked. And it's so funny that, as I said, I'm not going to say who, but one theatre company only last year released the diversity pledge, like called it, and anyone who's in performing arts will probably be able to work out who I'm talking about here, but anyway. <laughs> but in it, you know, basically, and I'm not saying these uh, aren't important, I could not find for the love of me disability mentioned at all. And this was separate to what I was talking to a couple of years ago. And I and a friend of mine who works at or has done work at this company said, Dan, disability was mentioned. I said, where I can't find it. He highlighted it to me. It was a one, literally a one line. Disability was mentioned as an issue of should be addressed in literally one sentence. Along with people who are homeless, so homelessness, so are homeless, as well as part of the LGBTQI community, and there was nothing else said. And as I get old and more advocating self, let's just say, <laughs> or, you know, what I'm trying to um, push out there, that's not good enough. And it is very important at the same time, as we also said that basically do it with kindness and obviously respect as well, because it's obviously we are fully aware and it's going to be even more so because of COVID um, financially, the world as general, but obviously I'm talking performing arts here, are uh, in an even more difficult space. So let's just say you know, disability may not be as top of a list as it inverted commas was before, you know, and that is tongue firmly in cheek. Um, but, you know, at, but at the same time, how do we, I came to me that basically it wasn't just me, you know, to answer your question in terms of yeah me in advocacy and I think that's what got me in it. and basically seeing that basically something which I will say here in terms of let's say universities etc because I literally did do a show that it wasn't neurodiversity and dyslexia but it was um, a young gay um, deaf hard of hearing performer a show that I did just this year which had a sold out season at La Mama as part of a midsummer festival but what I'm saying why I'm saying that a lot of issues that I had X amount of years ago are the same that that performers ha had only recently. And to me, I think that's shocking. Like when I went to um, uh, institution actually for myself, and I'm happy to say this about a course of this, and obviously, and it's dreadful when I feel we as individuals with neurodiversity and dyslexia, often the ones who have to start the conversation you know and that's another issue for maybe here or later on you know the comment was basically you know oh, oh if you got into the course again dan we could address it then and i pretty much in a courteous way was trying to say to them i need to know now what support would be available to me yeah. if i was to do that course and 
as I've said numerous times, and I'm not trying to say I'm the best or the worst director or person in performing arts, but I find it quite funny that most of my opportunities, especially the last couple of years, have been in New York and London. And I have been selected, I put here now, selected to be a fellow for ISPA, which is International Society for Performing Arts um, for Australia, um, and with a conference to be in New York next year, followed by one in Hong Kong, and due to lockdown, that's going to be held online, or I'm going to be attending it online, three o'clock in the morning, commitment to art, you know, you know, and it really is, but it is that thing about commitment. But at the same time, like at that same institution, which I once mentioned that said to me about support, etc. obviously I, I've, how do I say this? When I was discussing to them, um, just what we're discussing, and I had a pre-interview before the interview, I was told someone who was actually, and I'm not going to say who you're aware, obviously, but they said they were going to have a student representative on a panel. And my response was, oh, that's good. You know, obviously, the more voices heard, great, etc. And I, I pretty much said that. And I was told, no, the reason that person was going to be there, and this is another thing talking about advocacy, that person actually works in a disability art space, but does not identify as a disability. And I'm not saying all people who don't work, who don't have a disability who work in arts, who work in disability, don't do good things. But I have the whole thing about authenticity as well, which again, separate issue. But anyway, I was told that said person was going to be joining the meeting because I could speak on my behalf. And anyone who knows when you two have spoken to me for the last month or so, I think I can speak for myself reasonably. <laughs> <laughs> and stupidly, I said that, and I did a, did a whole hour presentation about representation, access, etc. And let's be blunt, I think it was a bit too much for them to deal with, you know, and that was only very recently. So, yeah. You've raised so many good points, Dan, and um, yeah. I'm trying to retain them all, I think, <laughs> which is really hard at the moment. I think taking a step back when you were talking about uh, inclusion and diversity and um, the disability is not represented. Yeah. Sally, how do you think we can address that? Um, what I've found is that there's been progress and that neurodiversity now seems to be at the table, um, but it's it's very much focused still on autism and not uh, yeah. uh, not the broader umbrella term that captures the rest of us. So how do we get disability and um, the hidden and the visible more uh, yeah. part of the inclusion and diversity of workplaces? I think Dan really, again, this lived experience example really talks to talent management. So for workplaces and uh, corporations that are looking for this, there's, there's so much competition in the, in the market of talent and um, people's capability. If you want to unlock the capability of your existing talent, if you want to be able to attract top talent, you really need to understand um, the whole umbrella of neurodiversity um, and you need to be able to make accommodations and be able to be creative and innovative enough within a workplace setting to be able to create a, const like constructed a job 
to meet the needs of the people that are doing the, the role. Um, and that's what you were talking to before, Dan, when you were talking about how you've got exceptional ability to be able to recall information and listen to a lot of, you've also got uh, ways that you see the world um, that other people don't, which is often um, a dyslexic uh, strength. And, and I, I personally call my strength in that regards constellation thinking, <laughs> that we can kind of put a whole constellation of information up there and draw in um, connections that others don't. But this is all to do with making roles within workplaces where, where we can draw on those talents. And that if you actually only write a job description or you only interview and select people through the recruitment process in a way that is only going to favour um, the norm, like normal, the, the norm of society, the mean, I mean, um, not, not neurodivergence, um, you're going to exclude 10% of the population at minimum, and you very well could exclude the top talent pool. So for, for many, many roles where there's a requirement for innovation, creativity, difference of thought, that's where some of the dyslexic um, abilities can come in because of the way the brain's wired by time. And no two, no two dyslexic is the same. Everyone has different circumstances. Um, but these are the talents that I see time and time again. Thank you for giving that example. I think also that, um, you know, the comment that Dan made around having people that don't have the lived experience representing us um, can sometimes be quite difficult, whether it's in the workplace or in the education sector. And I think, you know, one of the exciting things about this conference and the work that we do is that for so long we've had, um, you know, experts representing us and our parents, like I wouldn't be here without my mum representing and supporting me. And it's um, being able to have that transition of when you become a young adult into adulthood around how then you're able to self-represent. And Judith gave some beautiful examples early on there around that self-advocacy. But bringing um, more and more people with those lived experiences to the table, I think is really, really important. Um, as well. So Sally, you've done a lot of advocating. Is there one, because we're starting to run out of time and we could, if we could just check to see if anyone's got some specific questions you'd like to ask um, Sally or Dan, but is there something that set you on the advocating path as well? Oh, it, it's all around learning, Shay, for me. It has very much been around, um, I've always had a passion for um, learning and development. Um, I've, I've always been a sort of someone that's looking for new and change. Um, I've loved workplaces and careers where there's been change. And I, and that I, I think that if people actually just focus on workplaces' ability to learn and how they actually um, do embrace diversity of thought, that will, encompassing that actually helps everyone. Um, so I think the advocacy space is um, very much around inclusion um, and just understanding that it's not as difficult as it seems. And I think people do get held up on, you're talking about um, people advocating that are um, from an academic background or from the medical field. That can actually throw off a lot of workplace settings because I think, well, it's just going to be too challenging for me to really understand exactly what autism is, what dyslexia is, what dyscalculia is, um, you know, dyspraxia. There's just too many scenarios. I can't cover them all off. 
um, this is becoming overwhelming. But really, we're just talking about people at the end of the day. And um, if you really care about your workplace and the people, and you see them as um, your biggest uh, commercial advantage, the biggest, the biggest asset that you have in your business, and, and you really value your people, well, then you'll value learning about how they like to learn and how they can thrive. Um, that's, that's my core message there, Shay. And it's uh, in, interesting because you're talking about inclusive practice in, in the workplace and we've had a lot of comments around inclusive practice in pedagogy and your comment before if it starts in the education system and if the education system can get it right around inclusion and um, then that can have a flow on effect through to higher education and then into the workplace as well. Um, so thank you everyone that's been commenting. We haven't got any questions. We've got a couple more minutes. So is there anything... Um, in particular, Dan or Sally, you'd like to say to our listeners before we wrap up and head to lunch, thank you. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I could, there were so many different um, paths I could go down around recruitment. And we've got some comments around some of the pre-tests that people have to do um, once you graduate. And then you have to sit these um, tests to get into the profession that you've graduated in. So, I mean, lots of conversations we could have but are there any key points that you think you'd like to leave our listeners with today i would say basically just what sally basically said that basically see what is a talent not the diversity if that makes sense i think that is very important it's something i'm trying to promote if i can put my hand up for dan graham as well as an individual as well as anything else because like I think it's very interesting that basically, how do we say this? Obviously, I had someone recently, which I think is quite funny, and it's related to this whole conversation, which was more important to me, my doing my advocacy work. And I tried to say to well, I can't divorce one from the other, because yeah. I'm not necessarily, and I will put this publicly here, I do not want to be seen, and I may have people disagree on this whole statement, especially we're talking about advocacy here, I do not want to be defined as the neurodiverse director, the dyslectic director, mm. you know, you know. Yeah. And I think it's so funny, like I, as I said, it's a funny letter, two projects that I'm work, I'll have worked on this year, yes, they've been in that space, but it has been, ironically, someone had said to me recently, and maybe this is a sad commentary or how, how I've seen myself or how I see the world sees me. Uh, someone did say to me at the same time, what is the common theme in my work? If it's not in terms of disability, etc., and it's not, as I said, if you look at the place of directed, it's not like the disabled <laughs> canon of theatre. Let's just say, you know. And I said the outsider, and it's often it's so funny for someone that, and I'm, I feel like I'm in a safe space saying this, for someone who actually is a very out there p person who literally wants to engage with the whole world, you know, not just my experience but other people's experiences and. But I would go back to just what I just said then. I think that is related to my lived experience of having dyslexia, et cetera, that basically how other people perceive or see. Like, I love when you said, Sally, but you know, like, like online forms. I remember when I was actually at university, it came about this time early on, and I and I was living in Hobart at a stage, so this is not a Hobart issue, people watching this, it's just a statement, you know, but <laughs> exactly. But I, I, I was told Myers were looking for staff, you know. I just gave up because I could not do that test. I mm -hmm. physically, and 
mentally, not mentally, but you know, what I'm saying. Mm. you know, I couldn't do that test. And obviously I'm very open to people wanted to contact me or have suggestions about basically something we've discussed on offline, what the next stage is that basically, obviously like obviously directing is what I've studied, but I'm the first to say that directing is not necessarily the most stable profession, let's just say, and if you need a performing arts, but I really want to promote myself as someone who literally what my what my constellations are, you know, you know, what I am able to bring to not just an organisation, but uh, to any workplace. And I think it's like, how do we get to the stage that basically I was saying to you also that basically out of desperation, and it's a dreadful statement to say, but it's true. Recently, I went to Disability Employment uh, Centre and the person who saw me was younger than me. That's not an issue as such. But when the chief suggested to me, and as I said, also I've got my BA in Communications and Culture Studies, so let's not just self in the theatre realm in that. And it was said, number one, I should dumb down my CV, which I was taken back by, let's be honest. And secondly, and I'm not saying it's nothing wrong as, as such, but I was told, and I'm happy to say here, I was told that I could get a job at, like she could get me a job working at Bunnings. When I try to explain to her that something physically part of my disability as a whole, not just and maybe with dyscalculia as well, but I'm talking physical, physically, it's something I couldn't do. And trying to widen people's outlook, basically, as uh, Sally was just saying about the ten percent uh, example you gave, you know, like yes, inverted commas, I may need someone to send me a Zoom link, you know, and run over to send yeah. myself. I am able to be part of, not just be part of the conversation, but I am able to contribute, you know what I might say, yeah. Thank you, Dan. Is there anything else, Sally, before I add to what Dan's just said? <laughs> <laughs> I No, I think fantastic points and I and I hope, um, I hope the audience is really having a good listen because that's what this is really all about, is that um, people, with dyslexia have a story to tell that may not be the mainstream and sometimes um you know the story is told also in a way where we're constellation thinking and i'm sure others will totally get that but there's a lot of value there because we can bring things together and um bring points and uh see workplaces and settings in a way that others don't we see people in ways that other people don't as well um and and you know I, th I think that's the real learning is to really embrace understanding others um, and ask being curious. If you can be curious um, as a workplace or, or a leader uh, to really get to know people and then fit them into a position that's actually what I call niche construction, um, that is where you're actually going to get, uh, you're going to have, have happy employees and you'll have the benefits of prosperity for the workplace setting. Um, so, yeah, I think the two things are learning to learn and be curious and uh, like people because <laughs> people are awesome. Uh, you just got to take time. Yeah. And thank you both for um, those words finishing off. And there's a lot of chat coming through around uh, thanking both of you for your insights and also a lot of talk around um, primary school and secondary school. And I think, you know, it does start with children and um, in the primary school space where we are implementing that inclusive practice and you know there's been a lot of comments about it needs to be mandated so then 
and legislated. So then, you know, we start to see the benefits of that inclusive practice. And I think that it starts with the children and, you know, if we can build their confidence and self-esteem and they feel included and they can see their strengths as they progress through into adulthood, that follows them rather than the trauma that we see so many adults of Dan and my age that have gone through in the education system. So I think, you know, the education system's on the right track around inclusive practice. And if we can carry that through into the workplace, we will have um, a lot of happy people out there that are really fulfilling their dreams. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Shay. Thank you, Shay. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. If you'd like to find out more about Sally and Dan and the work they do, or access the recordings from our conference, head to the D-Hub. The D-Hub is our digital learning space where you can access our first Australian e-learning courses for those working and supporting dyslexic employees, as well as webisodes, online courses, communities of practice, and much, much more. So head to the D-Hub today and start your learning journey. dhub.dyslexic.com. If you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we do at the foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there is anything you've heard today that was distressing, please call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. If there is a topic you would like discussed on the show, please email us, admin at dyslexic.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.